Hi everyone, you're listening to the Actioneers, an EWB podcast featuring socio-technical professionals who are changing the engineering profession and the world so that all people and living things can thrive. EWB Australia acknowledges the traditional owners of country throughout Australia. We pay our respects to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander elders past, present and emerging and know that this land was never ceded. We respect their stories, their wisdom and knowledge systems and their ongoing deep connection to land, water and community. On this episode of The Actioneers, we're going to be talking with David Hood about the role of socio-technical engineering in responding to global heating and consequent climate disruption. Professor David Hood AM is a civil and environmental engineer with vast experience across major civil and military projects, professional development in emerging economies, senior management in both the public and private sectors, and in education. He is a passionate advocate for action to address global heating, resulting from the burning of fossil fuels. In 2006, David co-initiated and was founding chairman until 2011 of the Infrastructure Sustainability Council of Australia, ISCA. David is an accredited presenter with Al Gore's Climate Reality Project. David was the 2012 National President of Engineers Australia. In 2013, David was made an honorary fellow of Engineers Australia. On Australia Day in 2013, David was made a member of the Order of Australia and he was a director on the board of Beyond Zero Emissions and is a Queensland councillor of the Australian Conservation Foundation, otherwise known as ACF. That's a bit of a mouthful, David. In fact, what an incredible biog. I'm absolutely delighted to have you uh, chat with us today. Welcome. Thanks, Mel. So, David, first I'd like to start with uh, your story. You and I met when we were working together founding Australian Engineers Declare a Biodiversity and Climate Crisis, which is the industry's movement of passionate engineers and engineering businesses in responding to the climate crisis. But I think that there was uh, there was more to your story than just meeting at that point in 2019. So I'd love to hear why you're so passionate about your role and the role of engineers in responding to climate change. Thanks, Mel. I think the, the interesting thing was the aha moment that I had in my life, in my career, and my life to a certain degree. As you know, I was a very big major project engineer working in infrastructure, mainly around the aviation industry, airports particularly. Sydney Airport was my baby. But then an event occurred. The The job I was doing was going to move to Sydney with the Federal Airports Corporation. And I wanted to stay in Canberra with my kids in the high schools down there. And so I looked for a job that kept me in Canberra, got me a promotion and kept me in aviation. Well, I got two out of three. I got to stay at Canberra and I got a promotion. The promotion was to the Parliament of Australia, where I was, I became the Chief Property Officer, Assistant Secretary for for facilities. And that meant that I was going to be taking over and commissioning Australia's new Parliament House in Canberra. A big project, as you know, $1.1 billion to build it. And the actual building shocked the hell out of me because it was so inefficient, sort of grossly inefficient. The brief had said nothing new. It had to be proven technology. So when I got to take the building over, it was already 25 years old. 
because all the technology in it was ancient. And so in the first 18 months of operating the building, I was able to reduce the electricity consumption by 40%, simply by putting in, changing over from pneumatic controllers on the air conditioner, digital controllers, putting in a building monitoring and maintenance system, a computerized system, changing a lot of the lighting circuits around, putting in LED, well, there weren't LEDs at the time, but shifting to compact fluorescence and things like that, which we could. And that was amazing to get such a reduction in in the electricity consumption, but I got into trouble because I was reducing GDP by not buying electricity. And of course the coal industry would get upset if you weren't um, <laughs> buying more electricity. That was the aha moment that got me thinking, why do engineers do things that are so grossly inefficient? Why weren't they strong enough in the design of the building to say, no, we're not going to do that. We're going to make this building an example of sustainability for the people of Australia. And it just, it, it, it really upset me that we had an iconic building, an incredible piece of architecture that wasn't in an engineering sense, anywhere near what it could have been at the time. And so we got, we, we did all those changes and it got me thinking about sustainability in the built environment. And ever since then, I've just got deeper and deeper into delivering sustainability in the built environment, which got me involved very much in the green buildings uh, movement. I was there at the beginning of the Green Buildings Council and, and then into ISCA, the Infrastructure Sustainability Council of Australia, which was the green star equivalent for you know, roads, rails, tunnels, bridges, airports, seaports, et cetera. So that's the big, the big shift in my career. And one of the things that have come out of that is, is my problem with engineers, with my own profession, that through the universities, we don't teach engineers a good understanding of the interaction of their work with nature and society. It is increasing, it's improving. But when I went through engineering, the, the Dean of Engineering addressed the first years and just said, you engineers, when you graduate, are going to have the great privilege of taming nature for the benefit of society. And I thought, wow, I'm going to tame nature, you know? And it wasn't until taking over Parliament House and realizing that we, in what we do as engineers, is inadvertently destroying nature and, and wiping out ecosystem services, which are essential to delivering the quality of the environment for survival of life. For instance, when you're designing a building, why aren't you trying to bring back into the outcome of that building, the ecosystem services that used to exist on the site that you're occupying? We could talk about an episode when I was teaching at Southern Cross University here in Brisbane or Southport down the Gold Coast. And I took the master's students that I was teaching sustainability to across to a, to, to a bush area. And I got them to photograph and document all of the ecosystem services that they could find on that site. And then I said, we're going to develop this site as an accommodation block for students. And in the design brief that you write for that building, I want you to show how you want ecosystem services to be brought back. Those that you've measured on the site to be brought back into the building when it's finished and got them thinking about, you know, okay, we could put bird's nests in the solid walls of the building. So that you bring the birds back in, give them little holes where the possums can get in instead of getting into the roof and destroying all the insulation things, give them a home, build homes into their building for nature. And uh, green roots, plant trees all over the roofs that you bring the insects and the birds back, things like that. And the, the best example, Mel, that I found was um, a big tree that had 
rather large leaves. They're probably about, I don't know, 20, 20 um, centimeters across, maybe a bit more. And I got the students to put their hands under the leaf and feel the difference in temperature under the leaf from outside the leaf and not in the sunlight, in the shade still. And I got them to explain to me why it was cooler under the leaf. And they had to then adjust their thinking to what's going on in the leaf that makes it cooler under. And of course, it's the leaf transpiring its moisture into the atmosphere as a gas. And the latent heat that's needed to do that is being extracted from the atmosphere to make the change from, from water to uh, a vapor. And that then cascades off cold air call, falls down, of course, and it cascades off the leaf down. And so I'm getting to understand that there's nature's air conditioner. Why do you have to spend millions of bloody dollars and resources and greenhouse gases making mechanical air conditioners when the tree's already doing it for you? Just the Sounds to me like is a mindset shift from that extractive kind of older way of thinking about engineering and its relationship to nature and to a more sustainable mindset linked to immersion. Do we need to be asking yes. people? I like, like the word students? I like the word immersion mm. because you do have to getting the, I mean, there was a bit unheard of that engineers going into bush, we going bush for you. Know, we, we want to build bridges and railways, things like that. That's right. So it, it, that, that immersion into there and getting to photograph birds nests and photograph, they found snakes and lizards and they looked at the fish in the water and things like that. And said, okay, we've got to make sure we don't destroy these habitats. We've got to rebuild them back into it. And particularly things like you know, that, what do the trees do? They, they cool the environment and, and they suck in carbon dioxide and give out oxygen, you know, it's a no brainer to get them to think that way. But the, the, you know, the 10, the tendency in educating engineers is to get them to think of the, what they call the elegant solution, which is the most efficient way that you could solve a problem in reducing resource use, reducing greenhouse gases and things like that, which is teaching them some of the things about climate mitigation, uh, the climate change mitigation, but they don't then connect that back into nature. You know, what, what is nature doing for us? And it's a big interacting uh, circle of interaction. And if you I feel like, sorry, I was going to say, I'm... if you interrupt that cycle, then you disrupt things that then rebound down through nature and and that's what's happening to the planet. And that's why we have a biodiversity crisis. So I feel like that links in quite nicely to the main topic of our conversation today. I did, because I know you well, I know that part of the your burning passion for working so continuously and so hard and so passionately in this space yep. is, is your family, is your granddaughter. And that's certainly, you know, you and I connect in that space, don't we? Yes, we do. I have two beautiful granddaughters and, and you have a beautiful daughter as well. And yeah. they, are, they are the passion. They, they drive my passion. And particularly the youngest, Cameron, she's just, she's just brilliant. She's, she's been an Earth kid with ACF, Australian Conservation Foundation. And the thing that really broke my heart in a way was we went to a climate action meeting in Canberra when I was staying with them. Just before I, I came down and met you again. And, and she went up to a stall and picked out an Extinction Rebellion t-shirt. And she came up to me and said, Grandpa, can I buy this? And I said, of course you can buy this. So she uh, bought this little t-shirt with her pocket money, 
put it on and we walked around the rest of the day with Cameron holding hands with Cameron in her Extinction Rebellion t-shirt, which was just. I think it's um, important to make note also of your own role in Extinction Rebellion, which, and the reason that I, I raise it in this forum is, is just because it's, it's probably not the path that most engineers with oh. your background and your seniority would take. Did you want to just spend a, a minute or two just letting yeah. our listeners know why it is that that particular course of action is, yeah. is a path that you've taken and that you feel so strongly about? It's been, that was a hard decision for me to get active, but I remember, as you know, I've been passionate about this for nearly 30 years and it was Al Gore's, the Al Gore training that I did and, and in, in the Inconvenient Truth slideshow. One of the things that Al said in 2012 was that he, he believes that we do need now civil disobedience to bring about the change because all the traditional methods of trying to get the change have failed. And so that led me down a path of uh, getting a bit more active and starting to think about what, what can we do uh, to, to bring, bring the government to understand and to get them away from the current paradigm of you know, the donors, the fossil fuel donors, get whatever they want from government because they put more money into, into the parties and things like that. And I went to London for the big Extinction Rebellion October protests in 2019. And uh, we caught up just after that for the engineers to clear. And it was that experience over there to see how they were so well organized in bringing the commercial parts of London to a, to a standstill to the point where the government is starting to say, Hey, we've got to start listening because if like, we can't disrupt the economy so much as was happening in London. And so they started to bring in uh, policies. Not many, but it's happening. And now you've got Extinction Rebellion doing the, um, the, the Insulate Britain protests of, of shutting down the big freeways. And there's a lot of talk about how that's disrupting people getting to work and you're not, you know, you're not doing the right thing, you're not winning the population over. But the government is now listening to them. So a lot of the XR stuff in, in Brisbane that I've been involved with is disrupting the, the oil companies, disrupting coal companies. And we've been shutting down access to the big banks that fund coal. So you get the customers coming in and you hand them a leaflet and you say, did you know this bank is criminal, what it's doing to the planet? And, and you know, sort of the bank hates it. And slowly banks are starting to say, hey, gee, we can't have this. They are affecting our business with this disruption. So you've got to be targeted in the way that you do the disruptions. And there's a lot of talk about, you know, oh, that stops ambulances getting through with emergency people. And some mum was going in to see her dying son and you, you blocked the streets and she couldn't get, get there. And that's a dreadful thing to do. Well, what happens in London is that the, when a siren comes, they open the protest and let the ambulance through. They're all bloody, get out of the way, this ambulance coming. So, yeah, that was certainly true in Melbourne when my friends, yeah, when we joined the XR protests, I guess it was well before lockdown when you could actually do such things, streets, yeah. but that was absolutely part of the briefing process and, and part of the procedure of the day. Yep. Another thing that I saw in London, which we're starting to do here a bit is, is you've got to bring art into the demonstration. You've oh, absolutely. Give, you've yep. got to give the people that are demonstrating a reason to stay. 
And so they had the bands and the drum beats and they had clowns walking around helping. And then you have a lot of support. You have food. You have people going yeah. like, hard. Ah, a lot of community. Food. Yeah. And, and flash big, mobs. Flash mobs. Yeah. Bills are yeah. And, and, and swarming. Right. Yeah. I saw swarming brilliantly done in, in London. It's very they, creative and, there's, there's a, and vibrant. Yeah, it is. It's a protest at 11 o'clock outside MI5. And so I went over there at quarter to 11 and there's not a person anywhere. And I said, said someone, what's going on? Said, shh, shh, shh. He said, just go over quietly and wait. And then exactly two minutes to 11, thousands of people just hit the streets in front of it. And it's uh, all the police totally off guard, you know? Yeah. And then in fact, oh. came the lock on vehicles with this caravan with concrete in it and everyone's locked into this concrete. Took the police five hours to clear the lock on. So that was it's very thrilling, isn't it? It's it is a lot of life force energy and the feeling that you're actually making tangible concrete change because it's unfolding in front of your eyes and yeah, if you and, can, and the consequent, you know, policy changes yeah. and conversations that get forced, it can be a particular, you know, it's a meaningful tactic of which we need many tactics. We are talking about so the role of socio-technical engineering in responding to climate yeah. change. Um, engineers have a particular role. Engineers are the problem solvers, but what role have they been taking so far and what role should they be taking uh, to address such an enormous global issue? That's a very, very complex question, Mel. I think if I can focus first on my particular interest, and that is in environmental engineers and sustainability. And I believe there's a role there that, that environmental engineers are not sewage engineers and water purification engineers and site remediation people. I believe that they should become the general practitioners of, of the engineering profession where they uh, can go into a project and look across the project in a holistic sense and see all of the social and natural impacts of that project and know where to bring in experts in various things. So they bring in the soil remediation expert and they bring in an anthropologist to help them understand the impacts on people of this particular project. And they bring in a biologist and a, you know other people with expertise in, in stream management and things like that, if it's next to a creek or it's things. So getting that shift in the way we look at engineering and have the environmental engineer as the general practitioner who understands that how everything is links together and, and brings a system perspective to it. We're just taking a break so that David can uh, speak to his neighbour about his circular soaring, which is interfering with David's audio. So we'll be back in just a second. The bit that I, I'd like to ask you now is if what we need is a socio-technical engineer, so an engineer that understands the impacts of their decision-making, well, how do we have a changed workforce that has more of the socio to complement the technical? And I mean, obviously there's a role for the universities in incorporating, you know, that type of philosophy of engineering, which would be a very different approach to the approach that you've described where you took an art subject. Congratulations. Now you know all about the arts world. But, you know, we want people who are 
deeply empathetic so that it's not just a tick box on, you know, a spreadsheet, oh, must consult with, you know, traditional owners. It's like it's so deeply inside the moral compass of the engineers that that of course they would do that and they would do that as a matter of first business rather than, you know, at the end of the line. And and additionally, you know, do it. Is there a role for the profession? Do we need demand from the profession that this is a new way of doing it? Or does it need to be more punitive or top down from Engineers Australia? So how do we create a more socio-technical workforce that are equipped to deal with this huge global issue being climate change? Thank you for that, Mel. Uh, There's there's a couple of things that that came to mind while you were uh, describing how we solve or asking how we solve this. Uh, the, f- the first is immersion again. And I think that in, in engineering companies, there should be training in deep immersion in the problem. Now we've done some work with, with a very good friend of mine, Guy Lay, through the Long Future Foundation that I set up with Guy a while back. And what we would, we called it an executive briefing, but what we did was have a, a sort of a three phase thing. The first phase was to show the people in the briefing, which was a workshop environment, what's wrong with the planet at the moment. So we had a whole lot of film clips and immersive sound and things that showed the people how the planet is is failing in, in lots of areas. So there were some really nasty disruptive things about geopolitical disruption in the Middle East and things like that, that got very touchy feeling. You know, we, we showed people very close to having their heads chopped off and things like that. And, and then show them the disruption from cyclones and floods and all of the, the things that are going on in Europe with the floods, you know, I've never seen things like that before. And, and then you move into the second phase, which is sort of, well, there are solutions. How can we do it? And then the last phase is building the hope up and saying, well, you know, you, you people have got the wherewithal to do this. You're all executives, you're all run businesses, you know, you need to change the way you're doing things. So we do that with engineers as well. Get them to see that these projects they do, do have an impact and show some of the disastrous outcomes, the unintended outcomes. We did, we built a beautifully efficient railway, but boy, did we destroy some natural habitats and did we, did we wreck some sacred sites of our indigenous people who, you know, that sort of thing. So that they get it very face on head on facial stuff, connecting them. And then, then that take them into the solutions, the, the ways that you can do the solutions. Like I said before, with a building, integrating nature into the building, making sure that, that, you know, you can look after what was on the site before coming back into that site, but now integrated with the human activity. And, and so, and the second thing that I would urge is that when we put project teams together, we build a team through proper team building techniques to make sure you get the spread of expertise that you need. And again, that's where I'd come back to say the environmental engineer being the general practitioner who's brought in onto the site to help adjust the right sort of uh, technologies, expertises, and things that are needed. In one of my episodes, career episodes, I it was a build, it was building a training facility at Raft Base East Sale, which is where they train navigators mostly uh, for the air force and it was going to have about 80 or 100 people in the building with all their educators and trainers and things 
And I thought, well, okay, we need to understand how things are going to work in this building. So I brought an anthropologist into the team. And the engineers are looking up and saying, what the hell are you bringing in an anthropologist? And one of them said, she's a bloody woman too, David. You know, and, and it would just it floored me that they would, I said, who's going to operate in this building? What's this building for? Oh, there's a hundred people in here. Yeah, people. We need to know how those people will interact with the, with the hard material system that you're putting in there for them. And at the end of the project, we did a lot of um, big circles, interactions, and put you know, lots of butcher's paper sessions, which was good. But at the end of it, this engineer's come and said, Jesus, sweetie, that was fantastic. That woman taught me a hell of a lot you know, about what goes on in, in understanding human interactions with the building that you're, you're doing. So we need to do that, build the right teams. And, and, and that comes back to education. I think we need to make sure that our faculties, and this is Engineers Australia's responsibility in accrediting. Now I've done a lot of accreditation visits for EA and I, sometimes I'm appalled at the lack of, of that sort of inculcation of the socio-technical aspects of engineering. And some universities are starting to do it, but they tend to do it by bringing in a guest lecturer. It's not part of the faculty, so it's not, you know, the, and those students all listen and they all get excited and then, then the normal lecturer takes over and he's got no, or she's got no training in that connection. And I don't think that works. I think you've got to make sure that there's a faculty person on the staff involved in training all the other lecturers in how to make sure that they teach with a different culture. I mean, and David, I think that that was part of the aspiration when we set up Engineers Declare and the university started to sign on. In, in signing on, the pledge is made up of socio-technical commitments for self, for profession, for First Nation, for peoples. And, and that was definitely the ideal that, you know, there would be a new way of thinking that it would be completely ingrained in what men at the at the very foundation that the new engineers will be made up of these parts that were outlined in in the commitment and so for our listeners if they're interested in learning more about uh, engineers declare ideally signing the declaration and being an active participant of the movement so you can head over to engineersdeclare.org.au and the declaration is on the front page there if you'd like to have a read of that but um Sorry, David, back to you. I'd just make a shout out here to Engineers Without Borders and the remarkable work that, that you do, not only in, in helping get engineers to clear up off the ground in 2019 and uh, are quite, uh, quite well established, but just the general uh, EWB training in the, the offshore work you might do, to my mind, it brings that socio-technical aspect into it. And that's something that way back when Danny Almagor set up EWB, he and I chatted about making sure sustainability was a big feature in the EWB training uh, thing. So uh, yeah, big yeah. shout out to EWB for that work. It's great. Well, David, in wrapping up, any final thoughts, any little pearls of wisdom, anything you'd like to leave us with, any hoodie, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> any. I mean, yeah, I think that we are, we are facing a climate and biodiversity loss emergency. There is no doubt in my mind from the scientific evidence that I've been reading for 30 years. We are getting to a point where we need to make a very, very big change. And that's going to require everybody, not just engineers, but everybody to start demanding. I mean, as, 
as Tim Flannery famously declared a couple of years back, we've been trying for 30 years all the traditional methods and we have failed spectacularly to bring about the change necessary to avoid. This is true. The great yeah. collapse. And so, you know, it, it, it's civil disobedience. So I'm, I'm on the streets. I haven't glued myself to a street yet, but I'm joining all the demonstrations. I'm blocking banks and things like that that are funding coal exploration. So I would just say, yeah, we've got to get active. We've really got to start demanding through all the means we know that governments start shifting from the current paradigm. And I hate saying it's capitalism, but it, it is the current economic system that's driving this disaster that's coming. And so we need to rethink that. And there's a lot of work. I'm also involved with Regen Brisbane, or Regen Mianjin, Mianjin being the Indigenous name for Brisbane. And that's looking at how we can build into Brisbane's planning all of the regenerative things that we talked about to get, you know, get nature back in, get, you know, even keep the bin chicken in the, in the bins, you know, this sort of thing. That, the bin chicken came up during the workshop we had, and also, which we said it's going to be the emblem for our Olympics in 32, <laughs> the bin chicken. <laughs> That's yeah. very Brisbane. But if yeah. you had two bits of advice, one for students, one for professionals of immediate things that they could do to address the climate crisis, what would you say? Okay. Well, for students, it's, it's to open your minds, be critical, be critical of everything you're learning and, and understand nature, work on nature, get to understand the socio-environmental impacts of the work you do. For professional engineers, it, it is get active, get active within your workplace. Talk to people about the problem, particularly be critical of executive decisions. Let the boss know that this is going to destroy some part of our natural system and it could contribute to the impending disaster that's coming. And there's no doubt we are headed for collapse. Fantastic, David. Well, it's been so incredibly invigorating to speak with you and we're aligned on so many of those topics. And I feel really hopeful, like there's a lot that we can do. It has to be done now and we I can't lose faith. I, I have hope too. I have hope too. Well, thank you, David. It's been an absolute pleasure. 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 Thanks, Mel. creation of this podcast would not have been possible without the passion and expertise of our creative team, Julian Rausch, Isabella Fredhaim and Melanie Audrey. To learn more about this podcast, follow The Actioneers on Instagram. And for this episode's transcript and show notes, please visit our website at ewb.org.au forward slash podcast. And as always, please like, subscribe and leave us a review.